Let's see if I can get my machine to actually work. Oh, there we are. That's right. That looks like the talk I want to give, um, which is a good thing. In fact, it's been quite interesting to see over the last few days. I mean, this is the talk that I felt, as an emergency preacher, was the one to get out of the drawer and uh, deliver to you today. But there have been two separate confirmations from prophetic people in the church since, just completely unawares, uh, giving exactly the same word. So I feel encouraged. So very good morning to you. Anyone who has, I won't ask for a show of hands, anyone who experienced severe long-term pain will know that it's often best to keep as still as possible. But in that condition, most of us also learn that physical immobility has almost nothing at all to do with genuine rest, which is our subject today. Rest requires a stillness, not only of body, but also of thoughts and emotions. I'm going to come round to the Bible in due course, so don't worry. But I first want to mention two very different songs by the Eagles. Woo! That clearly illustrate that, yeah, I went to a wonderful Eagles concert at uh, Olympia one time, and the guy stood up at the front and said, who here remembers the 70s? And we all went, because we're all oldies. And he said, well, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, the Eagles. <laughs> Nevertheless, the Lord speaks through the Eagles, I think you'll find. I hope you're all fans, because I'm going to refer to them quite a bit. Life in the Fast Lane tells a story about a city couple destroyed by the pace of their lifestyle. Life in the Fast Lane surely make you lose your mind. Life in the Fast Lane, everything, all the time. And as their relationship and their health breaks down, she says to him, listen, baby, you can hear that engine ring. Been up and down this highway, haven't seen a goddamn thing. Life in the Fast Lane. The message is as bleak as it is clear that the pace of life will not only distract but destroy us if we allow it to. The second song is much more reflective and struggles towards a solution. It's called Learn to Be Still. It's on the Hell Freezes Over album. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. You'll be glad to hear. It's just another day in paradise as you stumble to your bed. You give anything to silence those voices ringing in your head. You thought you could find happiness just over that green hill. You thought you would be satisfied, but you never will. Learn to be still. We are like sheep without a shepherd. We don't know how to be alone. So we wander around this desert and wind up following the wrong God's home. But the flock cries out for another, and they keep answering that bell. And one more starry-eyed Messiah meets a violent farewell. Learn to be still. Now the flowers in your garden, they don't smell so sweet, so sweet. Maybe you've forgotten the heaven lying at your feet. There are so many contradictions in all these messages we send. Keep asking, how do I get out of here? Where do I fit in? Though the world is torn and shaken, even though your heart is breaking, it's waiting for you to awaken. And someday you will learn to be still. The message of this song is strikingly familiar to anyone who is aware of Psalm 46. For me, this psalm gives us the single phrase, the single phrase. (laughs) (laughs) 
The single phrase that best encapsulates a Christian view of rest, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. That's my principal message today, and it's also the title of this talk if you're taking notes, be still and know that I am God. You might study the whole psalm another time. Today I just want to use that one phrase as a sort of hook to hang some thoughts on as you read a selection of other Bible passages that pick up the same theme from lots of different angles. And taken together, I think these scriptures um, can help us to answer that heart-wrenching question, the two questions in the second song. How do I get out of here and where do I fit in? Rightly understood, by which I mean we have to stand under them, I think these scriptures have the power to move us closer to the kind of life the Creator designed for us and designed us for. So Psalm 46, before we move on to the other readings, let's uh, examine our key verse a little more closely. First of all, I'd like us to notice that this is a command, not a suggestion. Be still. Know that I am God. If we're too busy to do this, then as the saying goes, we're too busy. The psalm opens with the words, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It then takes us through a veritable catalogue of natural disasters, wars, empires falling, Brexit. I don't think it actually mentions Brexit uh, in so many words, but it is a picture of devastation and upheaval. And it asserts throughout the goodness and reliability of our God and his everlasting purpose to bring peace, where now we experience chaos. As every serious Bible scholar knows, God saves us in trouble, not from trouble. God is trustworthy, whatever's happening around us. That's why towards the end of the psalm, we have this commandment to be still and know that he is God. Because sometimes it doesn't look much like it. This psalm strikes at the very root, it seems to me, of much that we've come to accept as just ordinary modern life, where, in our world of 24-7 online, web-streamed, big-screened, multimedia, everything all the time, where is there a quiet space not to be entertained, not to be challenged, not to be informed, just to be? Are we equipped anymore to be and see who we really are. Or as the song says, would we do anything to silence those voices ringing in our heads? In this world where the God of our age seems to be vacuous connectivity, where we are encouraged for good or ill to be in touch with others 24-7, to present ourselves as coming from the right tribal group, having all the right answers and having all the fun, where is the time to get in touch with ourselves as we really are? Where's the time to get in touch with our maker? Where in this pinging, bleeping, tweeting, multitasking culture do we ever find room for just doing one thing well and enjoying the process? The psychologist, psychiatrist and lecturer, Dr. Arch Hart, taught some of us over a decade ago in a series of lectures that I warmly commend to you, and the wonderful Jesse will furnish you with a copy if... uh, if you're interested. It's on the epidemic of of depression. He said the principal reason that depression has reached the proportions it has in society, and he was speaking 10 years ago, is the way we choose to live. 
life in the fast lane, everything all the time. Medical professionals in Scotland will tell you that this has resulted in the three biggest health issues we face as a nation. Depression, obesity, and loneliness. And just while we're on the subject of medical professionals, if you are clinically depressed, I'm not suggesting in anything I'll say today that necessarily this will instantly cure you. But we all have things that depress us, things that make us anxious. And if it's not just a, a, an overriding medical condition, these things will get you out of it. But even if you are so clinically depressed, these things can't do you any harm. And they will help. <coughs> we will pray for you later, if that's you. We have to learn to slow down, and at least some of the time, take one thing at a time. Some of us uh, oldens may remember from Harry Enfield's various sketch shows, his disturbing creation, Wayne and Waynetta Slob. Anyone remember Wayne and Waynetta? Yeah, you see, you've got to be quite old for it. They're a revolting and dysfunctional couple, and they're almost, but not quite, too disgusting to be funny. And though Enfield is mocking it, I believe there is actually a wisdom akin to genius in Waynetta's oft-repeated answer to any request, any question. I'm smoking a fag. <laughs> as if she can't do anything else. And we laugh at Wayne Natter as somebody so, so stupid that if she's smoking a cigarette, she can't possibly do anything else at the same time. But what if she's actually rediscovered something vital that the rest of us have lost? <laughs> For as she smokes, there is about Wayne Natter a certain stillness of mind and body and emotion the ability to concentrate on just enjoying one thing and jealously guarding the experience from any other intrusion. Of course, smoking itself isn't all that healthy. <laughs> and it's not helpful spiritually. But watching Wayne at a smoke, I have to wonder whether I'm really getting more out of life just by doing more and more things at the same time. When I eat my supper in front of the telly, am I saving time by doing two fun things at once? Or am I actually halving my enjoyment of both experiences? What if I phone you for a chat while I'm driving to my next appointment? I'm not fully attending to you, and I'm not fully attending to the road. I'm not preparing myself for my meeting, and I'm certainly not meeting with God. When I multitask, am I saving time or wasting opportunities to live? While I'm cooking, do I really have to be listening to the news, washing up, and playing a computer game all at the same time? And if I do so, which I do almost every day, am I living more or living less? I might be getting more done, but where am I in it all? Am I a human being or a human doing? And if the phone rings while I'm doing those four things, does that make me cross? If it does, and it does, it's because I've so loaded that moment in time that it cannot bear human contact as well, let alone divine contact. The wisdom of Waynetta would say, I'm driving a car, or I'm cooking a supper. Our key verse, then, is a call back to a more simple and sensible way of living. 
And for those of you who prefer a literary reference, um, this thought is wonderfully unpacked for you in Alain de Botton's excellent book, How Proust Can Save Your Life. I'll say no more about him. Be still and know that I am God. There's a sequential relationship between the two thoughts. First, be still. Then, know that I am God. I just don't think it works the other way around. Until we're still, we'll never be able to know God. The disciples were amazed when they saw Jesus sleeping through a deadly storm at sea. Or they were panicking, rushing around and splicing the main brace and all kinds of things. In Matthew 8, Mark, Luke, uh, Mark 4 and, and Luke 8, it's, uh, it appears in the three synoptic Gospels. But Jesus was operating from a place of inner stillness, which is not disturbed by circumstance. It's a stillness that has its attention focused on the God who is in control, not on things that look as if they're seriously out of control. So how can we cultivate the same stillness in our own lives? I'm sure there are many others in Scripture, but I want to suggest just four ways. I'll do these briefly, I promise. Number one, let's cultivate stillness in our attitude to Jesus. Luke 10, 38-42. Familiar stories, all of these. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Oh, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha's attitude to Jesus was one of worship through service. The best way she could think of conveying her feelings of worship, which is where we get our word worship from, was to do something for Jesus. But Jesus commends her sister Mary for her approach instead. More student than servant, the way she chose to relate to him was less about what she could do for him and more about what she could gain by hanging out with him. And I can't resist mentioning in passing what an excellent feminist text this is. Martha's adopting the traditional female role of serving men. I'm just going to learn to be still about this. It makes me quite cross when people still try and do this. But Mary puts herself right in with the men, learning exactly like them at the feet of Jesus. But gender issues aside, what does this teach us? That some of us, for whatever reason, would rather do things for Jesus than actually come to Jesus. Of course, when we come to him, he sometimes sends us to do other things. But that's not his first priority. The first thing he had to say, with, say to every one of the disciples was, follow me. You come to him before he sends you out. Martha was very kindly trying to honor Jesus in ways he simply hadn't asked for. And her service excluded her from his presence. In the lifelong school of learn to be still, some of us struggle daily to free ourselves, even to remember God at all. But others get stuck at this Martha level, in the fast lane, especially of pastoral work. Busyness for Jesus can quickly overtake attentiveness to Jesus. 
However busy we may get, there must always be a place for being still and knowing that God is God. Luther famously said, I am now so busy, he probably said it in a German accent, uh, but let's not do that. <laughs> I am now so busy that if I did not spend three hours a day in prayer, I could not get through the day. We need, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> you edit it out in the tape. We need to cultivate our inner stillness by maintaining a devotional life of personal worship and prayer and study, even if we get nothing else done in the day. Mary's not Martha's. If we're too busy for that, then we're too busy. Secondly, let's cultivate stillness in our attitude to wrongdoers. Psalm 37 has things to say about this, verses 1 to 8. Do not fret yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Just as there are Marthas who can lose sight of Jesus himself in their efforts to serve him, so in the sphere of politics and social justice, there are activists who run the danger of forgetting who is really the boss. And as we read in verse 8 here, fretting myself, which basically means encouraging angry thoughts about all the injustices in the world, or the rants on Facebook, it only tends to evil. In other words, my rightly motivated indignation about corruption, violence, oppression, and dishonesty will quickly go to the bad if I don't place it all at God's feet. In the year when I first gave this talk, the British soldier Lee Rigby was hacked to death in a, in a street in Britain in the name of Islam. He was the victim of radicalized Muslims, men who fret themselves because of perceived evil and don't trust God to deal with it. And the elderly Mohammed Salim was stabbed in the back the same year and killed on his way back from the mosque, victim of another man consumed with hatred after allowing his rage to fester about the evils of Muslim extremism. Most of the genocides of the last hundred years, I would bet, can be attributed at least in part to the same cause, people fretting over even being manipulated into fretting over real or perceived evils, rather than trusting in God to judge justly. So what story do my Facebook posts on Brexit tell about my trust in the God of all the nations? We should be more suspicious of people and ideas and thoughts that cause us to fret. We should be slower to engage with them, stronger in fending them off, more diligent and determined in defending the peace of Christ in our hearts. Real or perceived wrongs have a way of getting right under our skin, and antisocial media practically exist to make sure 
they do. In some cases, we can take action. You can write a letter, form a protest group, engage in political process, talk to the person who wronged you, negotiate a settlement. And sometimes we really can't do anything. Either way, says the psalmist, only harm will come from fretting about it. But verse 5, if we trust in God, he will act. In no way is the psalm encouraging idleness, inaction, and mute acceptance. On the contrary, verse 3 encourages to trust in the Lord and do good. To dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And just one practical piece of advice that usually works for me in relation to all these sources of stress and fretting. Just to take care of one crucial question. Whose is the first voice I hear in the morning? Disc jockey? Today program? Chat show? Facebook rant? As Smith Wigglesworth used to say, if you don't want to meet the devil during the day, meet Jesus before dawn. Three, let's cultivate stillness in our attitude to our own circumstance. Philippians 4, 6 to 13. If we allow ourselves to concentrate on our circumstances, then most of us are headed for anxiety, depression, or both. Because one of the great guppodge, the great unremembered promises of Jesus, is in this world you will have trouble. You will. Jesus promises it. But there is another way, as St. Paul is keen to tell us. I'm just going to read it uh, bit by bit and comment as we go along. Verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. From the off, this is all about living in emotional and mental stillness. Every time we begin to feel anxious, our response should be to pray, not to worry. And notice, too, the strong emphasis on thanksgiving. In Vineyard, we like to start all of our meetings with worship, because it just sets our heart in the right direction. What we're seeking is the mindset that puts God in his place and us in ours, the place of being still and knowing that God is God and he's still in control. And it's the same thing with thanksgiving. If we come to God ungrateful for the blessings of the past and the present, how serious can we be when we ask for blessings of the future? Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise we can stand on. That if we banish doubt and worry and pray with thanksgiving instead, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Easier said than done. Practice makes perfect. Notice the word guard. It's the language of protection from threat, the language even of warfare. And though we haven't mentioned it yet, the devil, the enemy of our soul, is always seeking to remove our peace, to destroy our stillness, to get us fretting over evildoers, anxious about our circumstances, frantically trying to do stuff for Jesus out of guilt rather than living in his presence. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, who'd known so much opposition, persecution, often violence, had learned a powerful secret concerning access to the God of peace. 
to make a habit of thinking about what is good. This applies to our thoughts about people, systems, governments, circumstances, and all the things you've already spoken about. There's a phrase I remember John Wimber using often uh, when he came to teach leaders in the UK. He said, people make a mess, but don't worry. That's just people doing people stuff. That's what they do, because that's who they are. But let's not worry about people doing people stuff. Let's concern ourselves with God doing God's stuff. Jump down to verse 11b. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And 12b, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If we want to stand where Paul stands, we're going to have to learn this secret of stillness, the secret he knew. Early one rainy East Newt morning, my old friend, the Buddhist gardener, my once had the privilege of working with at Cambo House, paid me the biggest compliment I've ever had, I think when he said, today I'm going to work with you because I want to share your stillness. I believe all he was sensing was the presence of God. The inner stillness God provides is evident for all to see if we only let the peace of Christ reign in our hearts. Colossians 3.15, as he longs to do. Fourth and last, Let's cultivate stillness in our attitude to mystery. Psalm 131. Truly Christian teaching is all for the advance of science, but there has to remain a place for accepting mystery as well. I don't know if you're fans of the offbeat science program on Radio 4, The Infinite Monkey Cage, but they have this catchphrase that they, they, they shout from the front and everyone has to answer in the negative. Do we know what we don't know? No. Let's try that again. Do we know what we don't know? No. Okay, we've got to be comfortable with mystery. Here in closing is the Bible's view on the subject of mystery. It also happens to be my very favorite psalm because it helps me to remember who is God and who is not. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, my soul is within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The weaned infant, no longer looking to his mother's breast for sustenance, still finds comfort in her arms. Babies are the best scientists of us all. They experiment a thousand times on the vital issues like, if I chuck my teddy out of the pram, will it come back to me again? They're not satisfied with just doing it once. They really want to know if this, if this stuff works. Yet there comes a blessed time in every day when the questionings are quieted and a wonderful stillness falls, which is not understanding, but it's something better. It's trust. To say we don't understand the universe, the first cause of the universe, the triune nature of the one true God, is just to admit a fundamental truth, that our understanding is to God's, as the infant's understanding is to his mother's. This side, 
This side of the grave, we don't. We can't expect to understand everything. Even verse 3 doesn't speak of certainty, but of a hope so strong that it lasts way beyond this life and into forevermore. We think of our modern life in the fast lane as busier and noisier and more frantic than any era of the past, and maybe it is. But in our readings today, we've seen that finding a place of stillness has always been something that men and women have struggled with. It's an essential facet of the life of faith in any age and any culture. One of the hardest things we can ask any human to do is to be still. Every time I lead Compline in St. Leonard's Chapel, we have three minutes silence at the end, except it's not silence because there's some Burke can't help moving his feet. Just three minutes, they can't be still. We're talking about something very different from mere uncaring idleness in this stillness. It's a case of being still and acknowledging who God is. It's choosing to be in the presence of Jesus over just doing stuff we think he might like. It's trusting in the Lord and doing good, rather than fritting our energy away, fretting about evil. It's choosing to pray rather than worry about every circumstance. It's stilling and quieting our soul in the presence of God every day. This stillness is the true exercise of faith that puts God in his place and me in mine. And as we learn to cultivate this stillness, even in the busiest of days, we'll truly come to know that God is in control. Then, like Paul, we'll be content in every circumstance. We'll live before others in a way that demonstrates that God is real and present and loving and engaged with his people. If we can live and work from that place of inner stillness, we'll be much better equipped to fulfill the mission which our studies in Acts at the moment are forcing us towards. And more than that, we'll be in the loving center of God's plan for us. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. We come, Holy Spirit, and move upon the face of this people. Lord, we open our hearts to you, and we invite you to expand your work in our hearts. We ask for a falling of your stillness. And Lord, I pray for everyone who's aware of that stillness now that you're calling them to. I want to pray that they will remember this feeling. I want to pray for everyone who can't find stillness, even as we're begging for it, that you will touch their hearts and change their minds. I want to pray for those who are in that place of clinical depression. I want to pray for your healing to come, even if it's gradual even if it's just a shaft of light in the darkness. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us, your perfect way, your loving way. Amen.